There must be something in the air this winter. Something, that is, besides the whiff of climate cant and the manufactured eco-hysteria emanating from Davos and all the other organs of bien-pensanterie. For, everywhere you look, someone is going less than quietly insane, either cooking up or Swedish chef rehashing glaring errors of economic idiocy or sweet shop window socialism. Bork, bork, bork. It's bad enough that we have a 16-year-old Joan of Arc wannabe green extremist getting prime billing at the annual plutocrats ball at the WTF meeting, uh, sorry, the WEF meeting. But we must also routinely endure all the mass media and half the witch finders in the Twitterverse fawning over the jejune posturing of a congresswoman of IQ 16 as she insists that the only way to see out the year 2031 without becoming a caramelised coating on the glowing cinder which will then be our planet is to confiscate all wealth, abolish all property and usher in the long-awaited dictatorship of the Trolletariat, the whole to be undertaken under her incontestably sagacious tutelage, naturally. As we discussed in our last little monologue, on top of all this madness, the MMT crowd is enjoying an undeserved renaissance as the vanguard of the assault on the crumbling curtain wall of our liberties. Their patent men medicine man shtick, having been rendered almost respectable by the lunacies both being pondered, and alas being practised, by the contemporary monetary authorities. After all, when you have Benoit Curé at the ECB, the ineffable divas Marcus Carney at the Bank of England, and others of their ilk, now adding the IPCC to CPI and PPI among their list of major concerns, or the San Francisco Fed proudly proclaiming its leading role in the fight against something it calls climate gentrification, how wild-eyed can the champions of MMT, Mosler meets Trotsky, appear to be in comparison? Thus, even when a rare shift of enlightenment does break through the Stygian gloom of our folly, the chances are it will soon shatter into a rainbow of wrong-headedness amid the swirling miasma of error which so completely engulfs us. Take Sun, Sun Guofong of the PBOC, who last week correctly noted that it is principally the everyday commercial banks and not their big mother central banks which create money through making the ex-ante loans which later reappear on the other side of their balance sheets as ex-post demand deposits. Ironically, Sun's claims echoed a conversation I had at much the same moment with my very bemused engineering student Sun, whose carefully inculcated sense of logic and propriety was very much affronted at my assertion that this was the case, and that as such, it was a primary cause of the conjoint phenomena of stocks for the long run, hodl, and houses never decline in value thinking, which dominate the expansive blue-sky phase of every weary old business financial cycle. But if they create money, surely they can never go bust, was his not unreasonable objection. One I only partly overcame with my attempt to explain that bank runs, more peer-related wholesale today than Jimmy Stewart or David Lynn Tomlinson retail, I told him, much less with my rehearsal of the idea that bank capital as ethereal a concept as that is, is perhaps the main determinant of how much money a bank can originate and not the partly mythical money multiplier 
so beloved of all the macromancers eagerly sending each other aunt i smart bie do of something they call the global monetary base over social media platforms our man sun actually made a similar point to that latter at a conference called to help demystify some of the central bank's thinking but before we lord his perspicacity on that narrow issue we should pause to wonder at his endorsement of the smoke and mirrors ruse which is that august body's current perpetual bonds wheeze. This runs as follows. In order to address the limiting shortage of capital, which we have just identified as the critical nexus, Bank A will henceforth be encouraged to buy Bank B's perpetuals, and, of course, vice versa. Individually, therefore, each bank will seem to have met its Basel requirements and so will be able to pile loans to the tune of nine or ten times the face value of the bonds on top of this new fountain of painless riches. Systemically, however, you will note that this leaves banks plural with no more capital than before, but only enmeshes them in a tangle of those so-called triangular obligations of mutual bootstrapping, which have so bedeviled smaller enterprises up and down the land as they struggle to overcome gaps in their cash flow, mainly originating from their shocking maltreatment at the hands of the larger, politically protected and very tardily paying state-owned enterprises on whom they are forced to rely for so much of their custom. But wait, it gets worse. In order to wring the very last drops of leverage out of this process, the PBOC stands ready to swap these bonds for its own handily zero-risk-weighted issuance of bills for a period of up to three years, no less. Furthermore, should its counterpart commercial bank later wish to free up even more room on its balance sheet to lend to whatever identifiable sector is the state's flavour of that month, the latter can return the central bank's own obligations back to it as collateral in one of Big Mother's routine lending operations and so enable the pledger, the bank, to make yet another loan out into the real world. So to recap in more phrases of meanings of the phrase than one, this confusion, Chinese banks will augment their lending power by playing three-card Monty both with each other and their conniving overseer, all the while playing lip service to the internationally accepted norms for capital adequacy and theoretically avoiding any direct involvement of the central bank in credit allocation. Neat. But such is the magnitude, and probably the intractability of the present woes in China, that even this may not be sufficient. Hinting at the fact that the authorities are fully aware of this, a few weeks ago one Guo Fangming, a functionary at the Ministry of Finance, publicly advocated that the PBOC undertake a little abinomics of its own and expand the money supply more vigorously by directly buying the government debt which he and his fellows stood ready to issue. When the bank's initial reaction was to have the likes of Arman Sun try to dampen speculation that this was indeed now a policy objective, one of Guo's Treasury Department colleagues, a certain Wang Zhaolong, pointed out that the PBOC's aggressive use of MLFs, medium-term lending facilities, to funnel liquidity into the system against collateral mainly consisting of, oh yes, T-bonds, was functionally little different from what was now being more formally proposed. So far, the PBC seems not to have elected to attempt a refutation of this, 
something which is, after all, far from being a groundless accusation. Here the plot thickens further. In the middle of last month, the Dean of the National School of Development at Peking University, Yao Yang, rhetorically asked the audience of a forum at which he was speaking whether it had been entirely necessary to kill off the entire shadow finance system last year and hence choke off so many of the institutionally challenged private companies from the credit markets to their evident and still very much continuing distress. Citing the effect of the simultaneously tightening of rules on asset management company intervention, Yao boldly suggested that the central bank step in now to buy shares and other securities of struggling companies for its own account in a kind of broader and more endearing imitation of the TARP program by which the US authorities bailed out Wall Street in the aftermath of the Lehman's collapse. In another of those curious quirks of non-coincidence, all this happened at the same time as the sideways promotion of the chief stock market regulator, CSRC head, Yu Shu, to a kind of metaphorical rural re-education camp as head of the nation's giant agricultural cooperative agency. Brought in to try to mop up after the collapse of 2015's disastrous Mississippi Scheme 2.0 equity bubble, Shu suffered the ignominy last year of seeing prices slump back to much the same lows at which he started his reign, thus drawing upon his head much criticism for being too restrictive and of preventing the market from fulfilling its primary role as a means of capital, as well as a vehicle of speculation and a means of abetting peculating chief of executives as they tunnelled investor riches into their own bulging back pockets. In his place comes the new broom, former industrial commercial bank boss, Yi Huaman, who will be tasked with inviting gullible foreign investor flies to enter the parlour of the voracious Chinese spider, as well as with overseeing yet another regulation-like tech startup market to replace the one Premier Li Keqiang was pining to launch at the height of that previous mania. Ironically, one feature of this new white heat incubator will be the waiving of the necessity for firms to demonstrate a degree of profitability, both prior and subsequent to the listing, a waiver cast into sharp relief by the current vogue for several hundred firms on the main board to confess en masse to their sins of 2015-16 and to slash half or more of the book value of their goodwill to zero, the goodwill with which that era's excesses of M&A and merger mania had saddled them. Rationale for this multi-billion mayor culpa was that the recognition of heavy losses now came safely ahead of the potentially protracted sapping of profits and hence, after three years, the foreseeable peril of stock exchange expulsion made possible if new rules about that most insubstantial of accounting categories mandatory amortisation came into force as was widely rumoured soon to happen. Finally, and here is where you really do need to affix your tinfoil hat firmly to your skull, the central bank has just announced, while everyone was conveniently distracted by the ongoing Lunar New Year celebrations, a major internal reorganisation. After close textual analysis of the kind that only communists undertake now that the medieval scholastic era has passed and Alan Greenspan has retired, 
Some knowing local parsed the accompanying press release to argue that what this in fact entailed was the close subjection of PBOC chief Huan Guang to the whim of Xi Jinping's main economic fixer, Liu Hei of trade negotiation fame. Lending a certain credence to this, the main emphasis of everything said about this reshuffling in the mainstream press has since focused on the bank's according of heightened priority to enacting macroprudential measures, in other words, to the bolting of doors on empty stables, along with an even heavier stress on a mandate to ensure financial stability, something very much within the bailiwick of Liu Hei, of course. Given that President Xi has lately taken to harping on about grey rhinos, that class of widely acknowledged yet still greatly underappreciated risks to one's plans and aspirations, and also, in very graphic terms, to the unimaginable tidal waves and terrifying tempests which he says the nation now faces, one might be wondering if all of this activity is not aimed at weathering the mighty flood of financial collapse which threatens to sweep away the whole 40 years of reform and opening up, if not the whole era of the Communist Party itself. What our friend Sung Gua Feng thinks of this, I cannot say. But we're aware that he has been vocal in his contention that, contrary to sound common sense and practical experience both, negative interest rates are an effective response to economic decline, but only if banks pass their burden good and hard onto their retail depositors in a manner which they did not do in Draghi's Europe, but which presumably will be done, and absolutely without qualm, in his boss's Middle Kingdom. In a similar vein, that temple of West Coast wokery, the San Fran Fed, has just released its own endorsement of this same negative interest folly. Silvio Gassel, the ur-proponent of free land and time-stamp money from the 19th century, truly lives. Completing this trinity of decidedly unwise monkeys, last week the ECB posted a research paper, presumably straight out of the marketing department, which purported to prove that there were absolutely no cantillon effects, that is to say no arbitrary redistributions of wealth, associated with its pursuit of quantitative easing. Though one does wonder a little at the logic there advanced, that it did not in any way increase inequality, one of the cardinal sins of the modern age, in part by helping to boost house prices. All in all, it is hard to resist the inference that our beloved technocrats, whether in the apparat of the CCP or the bowels of some western central bank echo chamber, are trying to reassure themselves that the cocktail of hermetic potions and alchemical elixirs with which they treated us the last time around will instantly restore our health the next time we catch an ague, but only if forthrightly administered and in a much stronger dose. So perhaps that strange scent in the air which we mentioned at the start of this discussion is the smell of exotic volatiles bubbling from the gleaming alembics to be found in the laboratories of our good Dr Faustuses as they make their preparations to distill up another batch of their cure-all physic of even easier money and even more mispriced capital. Here in the year of the pig, it may well be that the first rerun of this experiment will be ordered by an anxious Beijing, and that when it is, we will all be told to expect stocks and bonds, oil and gold, real estate and alternatives, 
instantly to rally on and up into that soaring blue empyrean where so many of those same pigs will doubtless be found winging their way effortlessly by.